Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey, and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. My name is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here today, and I hope you're going to have as much fun as I will uh, chatting with our new guest. now, before I, before I go ahead and introduce her, let me go ahead and just do a quick bit of, a quick bit of um, house cleaning over here. On February 27th, which is a Wednesday, I am going to be at Clayton Studios in, uh, in St. Louis on Big Ben Boulevard, and I will be leading a seminar. It starts at 6.30 p.m., so if you're working, you can just go ahead and head over there right afterwards. And uh, I'll be leading a two-hour seminar that is all about the A to Z of podcasting. Um, not only do I have experience doing this show, but I also have, um, have extensive experience being a part of Right Pack Radio, which is a great, a great St. Louis-based uh, roundtable discussion every week, talking with different, uh, different writers and different great creative people. And I have also participated in the 411 Mania Movie Zone podcast, uh, years back. So uh, definitely have the experience and looking forward to sharing not only my experience, but also a lot of different tips of the trade with all of you. And so uh, if you'd like to join us again, it's on Wednesday, February 27th at Clayton Studios on Big Ben Boulevard. Please contact Clayton Studios for more information. Now, I'm going to take you guys back in time even further than I have done in recent, uh, in recent times with the exception of Mark Fratto when we went all the way back to elementary school. Um, but I'm going to take you back over to high school. And just like during the time when I uh, was chatting with uh, Brandy Stewart, who was my guest from a few weeks ago, um, I will reiterate that uh, during ninth grade, 10th grade, it was, you can say, a dark time for the rebellion. Um, I was <laughs> undergoing quite a bit of uh, stage fright that I had developed during. Uh, right at the end of sixth grade, which was my last uh, year in Poughkeepsie, New York, before my mother, my sister, and I moved to Richmond, Virginia. And during that time, my confidence was pretty much shot to hell. 
and I was just not happy about how things were going in my life. Um, but thankfully, uh, one man really came to the rescue. Uh, his name is Mac Dameron, but I will always forever refer to him as Mr. Dameron. And uh, he is the drama teacher at Millsy Godwin High School in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, when I was in 10th grade, I took drama one and then would continue to take his classes, drama two and drama three for the rest of high school. And I noticed something as soon as I really kind of hit my stride at in that, uh, in that class, I felt like I was re realizing who I really was, um, who I was here to be. Um, I have always considered myself since then as a storyteller in some way, shape, or form, either performing others or telling my own through my books, uh, which you can which you can get online, Excelsior, Ever Upward, and the five part serial from Parts Unknown. Um, none of what I have done since high school would not have been possible if I had not gone through Mr. Dameron's drama class. And this, I can safely say that that's the same thing that I can say for every other student that he has had, especially during that three-year period that I really got to know him and become friends with so many great people who are still friends today. And one of the great things about that class that I will, that I will always hold on to and will always be grateful to is that that class basically allowed me to open up and have the confidence in myself to become who I am. And what it didn't, ha it didn't have to be just on the stage. Now, granted, I did take, I did move on to Marymount Manhattan College. I took theater arts. I graduated with a degree in theater arts. I'm very proud of that. I've done some great productions on the stage at Marymount Manhattan College, but that would not have been possible if Mr. Dameron did not have the confidence in me to give me three roles during my senior year um, in the, in the uh, play Greater Tuna, um, with one of those roles being a lead, uh, one of the two leads in that, in that show. Um, so I can definitely go on and on and on about how it's helped me, but I can also say that it helped everyone else in that class become who they are. Now, not everyone went on to the stage and stayed on the stage. Um, there are people that, you know, that have been able to tap into their creative juices in other ways, um, whether it's music, whether it's television, whether it's film, whether it's becoming a filmmaker. And in the case of my guest here today, becoming an artist. And I am so thrilled to have a, a very a very old friend from that time um you know she and i go back she and i go back over 25 years so i'm not you know like i'm not purposely dating ourselves but at the same time it just gotta you know embrace that um but i will just give you a quick breakdown of what elizabeth meggs has been up to ever since she finished her time at godwin high school she went on to attend VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, on a full scholarship. She graduated summa cum laude uh, with a BFA in cre uh, communication arts and design. And she also got her master's degree with distinction in painting from Pratt Institute. Okay. 
She was inducted into the Visual Lunacy Society in 2004. Uh, she has gone on to become a graphic designer at Hearst Victoria Magazine. She's been a writer at the Los Angeles Daily News. She has been, she has been uh, a faculty member at VCU, at Pratt Institute, at the New York College of Technology. She has gone on to have her work shown at Lincoln Center in Chelsea and Los Angeles. So many great things, so, so many wonderful things. And she even has... Um, she even has her own, um, she has her own writing out there, including Practice Makes Perfect, a graphic design student's guide to freelance. She has done so much, and I am so thrilled that she has had the time to sit down with us and share her journey with us because she's just getting started. You know, with everything that, that she's got going on right now, the sky is the limit for her. I am so proud to be her friend, and I'm so thrilled to have her here. Ladies and gentlemen, Elizabeth Meggs. Elizabeth, how are you? Hi, George. I'm so happy to be talking to you um, about our long. Excelsior journeys. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, we go back 300 years. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of feels like that at times, but, uh, but <laughs> it's, it's, it was really just terrific. And you've been nothing but a gem to me, like, you know, the whole time that we've known each other. And I always appreciated that. Um, and... Now, you know, like now here we are, you know, we have this, we have this moment. So, well, I'm so, we I can't, I have to say how, I mean, you were, you're sort of singing my praises right now, but I have to say, I'm so proud of you for writing your books, Excelsior one and two and from parts unknown. And now you have more coming out soon, more in the works. Um, it's a very inspiring to me, just how hard you're working and uh, all that you've done so far. So really exciting to hear that you've pursued so much and that you have and, the podcast too. Yay. <laughs> oh yeah. And the, um, and yeah, this is going to be, this is going to be really interesting because like um, what's great is that um, since you were a, a fellow student during that time in Mr. Dameron's class, you kind of got to see firsthand the, the very, very rough um, original sketches and, and writings and everything that were, that would eventually become Excelsior. And, and I, saw, I saw George Soroy in the raw material yes, before yes. you, yes. Before I, figured well. out what, before I figured out what <laughs> I was doing. Yeah, because during that time, it's fun. Like during that time, I was, I was doing what you can basically call reverse fan fiction. Um, because, you know, normally with fan fiction, you're taking established characters and you're dropping them into new situations. What I was doing was taking new characters and dropping them into established situations. I was ah. ripping off from everything that I, that I had laid my eyes on. I was grabbing stuff from the Star Wars trilogy at the time. Um, you know, the 87 Masters of the Universe movie was a huge inspiration for me in, you know, in, in, its, own, in its own interesting way. Um, just grabbing stuff from, you know, Transformers and, you know, like all this great stuff and everything. I was going to say, did you watch Transformers and, and yes. Voltron and all of that? I did too, because oh, yeah. I had oh, an I older brother. Oh yeah, I was a child of the 80s. So yeah, that was, yeah. that was my, that was my jam. You know, that was. Transformers. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like I, I remember being 10 years old, seeing, uh, you know, going to the Transformers, the movie with, uh, with my uncle and um, being somewhat traumatized by Optimus Prime dying. I wasn't the kid. <laughs> when he died, that was a big moment. It oh, was yeah. when Optimus Prime died. I, was, yeah. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. I was not the kid, um, you know, contrary to popular belief, I was not the kid who hid 
in his room for two weeks after after that happened, which is a true story. Uh, that's something that uh, the writer <laughs> Flynn Dilly would uh, um, had has uh, spoken about before. Um, but uh, yeah, I was not him, and um, and I actually I'm I'm of the minority when I say that I would have loved to see Rodimus Prime actually continue to grow as the leader before Optimus Prime came in and basically gave him the Jay Leno treatment and <laughs> you know, kind of, you know, basically kind of took the swipe the rug out from under him and saying like, okay, I'm, I'm back. I'm ready to, you know, take, take command. Now you can go back to being hot rod and go, you know, go hang out with the other target masters. Well, and I think, um, I think on a, on a bigger scale, like our childhood in the 80, 1980s, um, I feel really lucky that we were born sort of just, as the digital revolution was picking up. And so we had this, I had an analog childhood. I remember turning the knob on the television set and things like oh, yeah. that. Um, and so I think just to see the digital revolution happen, uh, see all the wild innovations, get into kinetic media and cable television and um, music videos and video games, early video games, um, just wild. I, I'm so, I think it was thrilling to grow up during that time. Oh yeah. 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 Do you so, know what today is? Today's February 7th. I just heard it's um, Charles Dickens birthday. No today. kidding. That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. Happy birthday, Charles. I know. <laughs> well, well, the reason I mention it is um, I found out recently that Washington Irving had a grumpy old older brother named Ebenezer. Washington ah. Irving who wrote, you know, Sleepy Hollow and, and, um, all of his great American literature, he had a real grumpy older brother named Ebenezer. And I read and found out that Charles Dickens had actually visited Washington Irving and Ebenezer Irving well ahead of writing A Christmas Carol. So oh, awesome. just a literary anecdote. Um, the original Scrooge, perhaps, mm -hmm. Ebenezer yep. Irving. Um, so the name Ebenezer Irving, I think, needs to make a comeback. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> um, if you have a son, consider Ebenezer. Well, I'm I'm good with Scarlet right now with with, uh, with my daughter. We're not thinking like, uh, you know, get getting her uh, getting her any uh, siblings anytime soon. It was it was enough of a it was it was enough of a drama just to you know kind of get you know get Scarlet to where she is right now. So um, so anyway, so let's uh, let's get back to you now. Let's um, oh, back to Mr. Dameron and drama too. Yeah, yeah, because um, yeah, what um, what I what I really love to know from my guests is I love hearing about that lightning bolt moment because we all have one. We all have that sort of we all see something or something just kind of sparks in us that makes us point toward the journey that we're about to to go on and say that's where I want to go. That's what I want to do. And so when I'm lightning really lightning about, bolt moment. Yeah, where you're oh, yeah. struck so, by lightning. I'm curious to know what your lightning bolt moment was. For me, it was really, um, really, it was it was seeing Star Wars. You know that okay. you know, if, if I if I had to pinpoint anything, it would be that because I just became just a, a full, not only a full on fan. You know, like that's that's that kind of goes without saying, but just um, I I felt like I became like a student of it. I wanted to learn so much about it, seeing like where George Lucas came up with this and the sort of impact that he had, you know, like I would love to have some, you know, a similar type of impact with, with my, with my writing. And mm -hmm. which is a big reason why the first Excelsior is, you know, it goes, it, you know, really 
holds tightly to the hero's journey template that Joseph Campbell came up with. And that's something that, you know, George Lucas was a student of, of Joseph Campbell. And so he was able to, you know, work with Joseph and, and see like, am I doing this right? Am I getting all of this right? And the fact that he was able to get so much of it right, that really kind of allowed me to just kind of tap into not only Joseph Campbell's writing, but also with all of the different people that inspire, that were inspired by him. And, you know, when people say that, you know, the first Excelsior book is so cliched, like, well, of course, it's a template of the hero's journey. That's, you know, it's, it's a cliche because it works. That's the, that's the way I look at it. And <laughs> I always wanted to do, and I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to do that uh, with that first Excelsior book. And now I get to, you know, now that Ever Upward is out, and I'm so, so proud of that one. Um, I consider that one a better book than the first Excelsior. Now I can focus on Greater Glory to wrap up that trilogy and move on to other things. Well, I'm, you know, I'm interested to hear, and we can talk more in a bit about um, criticism and how you deal with handle criticism sometimes when it's harsh or if someone says this is cliche. Um, I think that's something every artist or creative person has to deal with if they keep working. So, yeah. Um, in in terms of my lightning bolt moment. I don't know that there really was one lightning bolt moment for me. Um, I always, as a child, grew up coloring and painting as a child, as most children do. Most children stop coloring um, at a certain point, which is really sad. And most, most people, when they're children, love to color, with, pull out the Crayolas. Um, but I never really stopped. So uh, the reason I stopped, never really stopped was because I was fortunate to grow up with extremely encouraging and supportive parents. So my, my dad, Philip B. Meggs, and my mom, Libby Phillips Meggs, they met in art school. So <laughs> lucky me um, to like art. I was surrounded by art making growing up. So I would say being creative, making art, it's always been an essential part of being alive. So it's mm -hmm. like eating lunch, sleeping, reading. Um, when I have spans of time when I'm not, when I'm kept from working or making artwork, everything feels off. I feel terrible. So it's, I have to do it. Um, I'm happiest when I'm working on something creative. That's the best thing. Um, my favorite part of being alive is when you're really, when I'm really involved in the zone um, with creative work, whatever it may be. Um, in terms of what made me take the big leap, and quite seriously pursue painting, um, it would have to be a number of uh, pretty challenging, sad, tragic experiences that I had in my early 20s. Hmm. So um, I had a part-time job um, in a building that was destroyed on September 11th. So experiencing oh. September 11th, um, a friend of mine, actually you and I were in high school with mm -hmm. she was in the art club with me she died that day alicia burton no. really yeah and um the building where i worked was destroyed uh everyone i worked with was alive um but i didn't know for about 24 hours if everyone i worked with was alive i had a later shift that day yeah um so that just you know completely made me realize how fragile life is um, during that time too, my father uh, developed acute myelogenous leukemia um, and he really went through the harsh chemotherapy treatments. He almost died during the first round of treatments. Um, he was unconscious on life support for a month. 
um, it was harrowing and he came, he got through it at first, went into remission for two years, but then um, his leukemia returned and he sadly ended up dying at a young age in 2002. I also have had a few friends to die. So I'm not, not trying to make everyone sad, but what I gained a deep understanding early on, you know, right out of college of how short life can be. Um, so there's really no point in living a life of dreams deferred. You know, I really understand that uh, all of our days are numbered. Um, those tragic experiences, I think, made me much more strong and brave. Mm -hmm. um, I knew that if I could handle, for example, two horrific years of my father's leukemia, subsequent death, that really everything else, every subsequent challenge, um, I would be strong enough to handle. So, and also just puts things in perspective when you know, like, we don't have unlimited time, you know, uh, so get to it. There's a sense of urgency to do <laughs> the work you love and, and um, lead the life you dream of living. Don't wait, don't hesitate. Um, but, you know, I think going into something like art and painting, it's uh, definitely scary because there's not not an absolute path to success doing that, whatever success is defined as. Um, but that, I really think that's true in any job. You know, you might think I'm getting a job, uh, whatever it might be, as a lawyer, as an accountant. Um, in any field, there are challenges. In any field, you um, might not make it. So I think um, it makes sense to go after what you love, because if you love it, you'll be all the more motivated to work as hard as possible. It'll be easier to put in those long hours and stay up all night to do the work you need to do. So with that in mind, um, so you've, you've gone, you've gone through this, you've gone, you know, you've, uh, you've gone through college, you realize that, you know, this is going to be your driving passion. What was it like when you were able to basically just, you know, kind of, you know, set yourself full on on this course and just like, you know, I, I am an artist, I'm a painter and get that first piece of work on canvas. What was that like for you? First piece of work on canvas. <laughs> um, you know, like I mentioned, I've always been making artwork my whole life. So to say the first time, first piece of work, um, when you mentioned well, that. I mean, what like, as, as a professional, I mean, you know, like as after you've gone through all the all the steps you've that, uh, that you've gone through to kind of harness your skills and get them get them at the ready. What I was think I really like? think I'm um, going through graduate school at Pratt Institute, um, the having my final thesis show that would be a moment um, where I had an entire gallery solo show filled with my work that had been really labored over and, and um, conceived as a show where I invited a lot of people. <laughs> um, yeah. It was nervous about it and all of that. Um, I think that that would be really the first, first big painting step. And um, what a great program it was too. I just can't speak highly enough about Pratt Institute. Very rigorous training. Um, you're challenged on everything you do. So you really have to learn how to articulate your ideas and to stand up for yourself um, and, and defend your work. Know, know why you're doing it, what you're doing, um, that sort of thing. So um, I, I think it really, that program prepares people incredibly well for um, becoming a practicing artist. And then following that, I was fortunate enough to um, 
find some artists who had a studio near where I lived and um, share some space with them. So I had a space to keep working. Um, nice. That was critical to have to have the space to work on paintings. Um, I do oil paintings, so it wouldn't really be I wouldn't really want to work on large oil paintings um, in my living space. So working in a studio where it doesn't matter if you get paint on the floor, where you have good ventilation, that sort of thing. Right. Um, just having the workspace to keep keep on going. Um, and also the community of artists and curators I met in graduate school uh, here in New York, that's been invaluable in terms of um, knowing people who ask me to participate in shows, um, sort of getting a foot in the door, connecting with the New York art world, that, that kind of thing. Um, but a lot of it really is just uh, continuing my practice. It's a discipline. Right. I love um, art is work is something that designer and artist Milton Glazer said. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's really waiting around for a flash of inspiration before one can get to work. Um, working, and you know this from being a writer, working, working hard, that's the most important action. So just getting to work, like really working, um, being willing to pull the long hours and the late nights, um, sacrifice your weekends if you need to. Right. Um, just tenacity, perseverance. I know I don't, I know it might sound cliche to say, and you hear it a lot, but perseverance, um, discipline, all of those things really count for a lot. Um, one thing that's uh, pretty sad is a lot of people who have great educations in creative fields like painting, um, the day they graduate is the day they stop working. So it's almost like if you can just keep working, keep on trucking, George, yeah. <laughs> keep on working. Um, that's a huge part of it. Um, and I think if you really love the work process itself, that's incredibly helpful. Um, so it's, love of working. Yeah, it's its own reward. Really. Yeah, love of working keeps me working. Um, yeah. you know, there's, I think there's always something new to try or explore. Uh, a lot of times a painting for me is about wanting to know what something will look like if I try it. Um, so my main love is not really about the finished product, but the work journey excel itself, like the Excelsior journey. It's yeah. exciting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I mean, really, um, just to kind of, you know, just kind of uh, bring bring it all, you know, like home regarding the show is that, you know, Excelsior journeys, like it's called that because Excelsior itself means onward and upward to greater glory. That means you're in the mm -hmm. process of constantly making yourself better. And that's right. really what all of my guests have had. You're, you know, have, have had that tenacity to do so, yourself included. So, um, which is, which is wonderful to hear from. So, um, and really, I mean, I could, I can, I've definitely had my own stories of my own nights of, you know, working in the office until 5.30. I still remember, you know, working um, working a good six hours, getting that last, I want to say like about 50 pages done on part five of From Parts Unknown, like getting it all done. It was just an amazing feeling. It was such a rush to do yeah. that. And, and then, then were you exhausted after you finished? Oh, or? yeah. Oh, okay. Absolutely. <laughs> there was, and, you know, like, and Cheryl was asleep in, in, um, uh, in the bedroom and everything, there was no way I was going to walk in and wake her up on a Saturday morning. So I just, I just camped out on the couch and just stayed. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm glad I did because it was, you know, just felt just so relieving more than anything. Just like, I finally got that one done. And even though that particular project hasn't exactly burned up any charts, mm -hmm. um, 
it's still something that I always love because I just wanted to tell that story, no matter how it wound up being, because it's it had gone through so many different iterations and it finally got to a spot where I was happy with it. And I can finally say, yes, the story is is told the way that I believe it should be told. Now I and I it. love that point. I love that point that you're making. Um, I think uh, the longer I'm a practicing artist, um, really the more I think it's so important to be yourself. Uh, yeah. And you know, there's so many, so many um, criticisms and rejections, but I think it's very important to be yourself and make work that you want to make work that you believe in, because yep. if you're making work, that's not something you want to explore that isn't you, that isn't yourself, what's the point? Right. Um, be yourself. When, what I love about art is there's no right or wrong. You can look yeah. at history. Uh, really, you could do anything. And so that in itself can breed a certain amount of anxiety um, because you start with a blank space or a blank canvas and you're asking yourself this series of questions same with a blank page with writing like yeah what what color should i use what medium should i use what what words should i start with um so that series of questions is sort of inherently anxious but in a positive way too um but but just this process of um making the work making the choices you want to make um because you'll always face critics you'll always have rejection even the world's most celebrated artists and writers um oh, yeah. have people who hate them so that's something mm -hmm. i think um as some as an emerging artist or writer um dealing with rejection and criticism um is something uh having a thick skin helps you know and i think the more criticism and rejection that we encounter the easier it becomes to deal with um rejection's part of the process oh yeah yeah i yeah just uh not too long ago because my uh because excelsior actually got uh took part in a bookbub promotion and bookbub is huge Ooh. when it comes to getting getting word about your work out there into the into the reading world bookbub is like the loudest possible microphone bookbub i like the name <laughs> oh yeah and um and it wound up actually getting enough buys um because my um uh, my publisher and i like we set it up at at a 99 cent price range oh okay and it wound up getting enough buys so that way it hit a number one bestseller spot on both wow on amazon us and also three number one spots in amazon canada Yay! So, so I can now call myself an international bestseller. I say yay. I should say a. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Beauty, eh? Um, yeah. So yeah. Hey. So it was. Um, so my my French Canadian brothers, you know, like and sisters, I thank you. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So it was. But at the same time, because it opened it up to so many new readers. It's also gotten, you know, like a couple of one-star reviews, you know, people, you know, that don't know me for, at all, you know, and just happened to, you know, get this because it was a good deal and they considered it a waste of time. You're like, well, that's, that's their prerogative. But at the same time, a couple of reviews later, somebody dropped the five-star review saying that it was, that it, it was a good story and a lot of fun. So like, you know, you can't please everybody. So well, isn't there, there's that saying, um, isn't it, you know, that if, Lincoln, I think, saying the only me. way to not be criticized is to not do anything or not make anything. Well, there you go. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, yeah. Like, um, yeah, I think uh, Lincoln said, you know, like you can't please everyone all the time. And, <laughs> you know, so I, I, I just realized like, you know, like you said, when it comes to criticism, I just, 
you know, I, I just haven't been a regular viewer of my Amazon page anymore. It just felt like, yeah, I got those and everything. Yeah, they consider it that. But there are also a lot of people that I know and that I don't know that wound up getting a hold of this book and really enjoying it and wanting to find out what happens next. And so, and a couple of people that have read Ever Upward have really enjoyed that. So that's, that's all I can do. You know, that's all I can do is just write the stories that I feel work for my characters. And if they work for the general public, great. You know, like, um, obviously I would love it to succeed. And the fact that Excelsior was able to get as many buys to consider me an, considered an international bestseller. Yes. That's a, that's a, that's a nice little bonus. Yes. Did you celebrate? Bonus. How did you I, celebrate? I want to hear about this celebration. Uh, basically it was just a matter <laughs> of, um, did I, it was basically just kind of like basking in, you know, that moment, just a little <laughs> bit. I mean, it was basically just making sure that I had screenshots of yes. the Amazon pages and the rankings and everything. So yes, they are legit. And these are not lists that I just like, created so that I could just sell like a couple of copies and all of a yeah. sudden I'm a number one bestseller because there are too many people that game the system, which is a reason why there are so many people that will reach those kinds of levels, but are afraid to celebrate it because they're right. just like, because they don't want to be lumped in with all the people who basically scam the system in order to get those accolades. And buy so, out, is, when you say scam the system, do authors buy out copies of their own book and things like that? Exactly, yeah. Okay. And, and that's yeah. something that, you know, that's something that uh, that people do, you know, like uh, like politicians will do. Oh, they yeah. will buy, thou their publisher will buy thousands of copies of their book to be given out at different rallies. And so, you know, like all of a sudden, bam, it's like a number one, you know. New York Times bestseller, bestseller. yeah. Exactly, you know, so. You know, that happens in the art world too. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes I think gallerists will bid an, an artist they represents work up at auction and that kind of thing. So I think that's everywhere, but. Um, yeah. I, I make, yeah, I make no apologies for, for those, for hitting those marks, because even though like I was trying to get like a USA Today, you know, bestselling list and it didn't make enough for that, at least it made enough so that I can say that, you know, like, you know, Amazon lists do count for something. And oh yeah. So, so because of that, I can say international bestseller and call myself an international bestselling author. And I can call myself- International man I, of mystery. <laughs> well, not quite, you know, cause you know, <laughs> I don't have the teeth for that, but uh, um, you know, although I'm, you know, I may have the glasses, but uh, yeah, <laughs> don't have the crushed velvet suit either. So. Oh, um, I, think you, I think you need one. I think crushed velvet coming next. Oh, well, it, 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 I think you could. If I fin if I can finish, although actually I did wear one at uh, I did wear a velvet um, jacket at uh, at PenCon for last year's uh, lip sync contest. <laughs> my, myself and two of my friends, we did uh, we lip sync Love Shack by the B fifty two. So I got to be Schneider <laughs> and just had a blast. We wound up winning, so that it's it's a fun little story. But um, um, but anyway, to get back to get back to you, so. Um, <laughs> So when you say you had your first, your first gal, you know, your thesis that, you know, that gal, that, uh, that gallery that, uh, that finished up your time at Pratt Institute, was there like a set story that went with each of the paintings that, you know, like if you saw them all, they kind of 
created one thing or was it all just like this is you know this style and this is this style and this is this style like how did you know it, it certainly was a cohesive group of paintings uh really uh i began a formal exploration of color and form at that point and i've been continuing that exploration for a decade the work in the thesis show it was all non-representational um in that i'm not making paintings that have um verbally representational content like this is a landscape or this is a portrait of burt reynolds on red velvet um right. my work <laughs> deals with invented form um so uh this idea of having a cohesive exploration that's in depth would be what i was dealing with at that point um and i think really exploring form um, mm -hmm. in this way artists haven't been pursuing it for that long it's really only been accepted for a little over a century so to me there's still a lot to explore in um this so when i talk about exploring color and form um one analogy that i think is great to for people to hear if they haven't really looked at many paintings or they might see a painting that looks abstract or doesn't have recognizable content and they say i don't know what it means i don't get it um this looks like a painting of a triangle um a great analogy is to make an analogy to music um and kandinsky wrote about this um you know like a hundred years ago roughly um where basically if you think of music that doesn't have verbal lyrics so maybe an instrumental piece like classical or jazz music right that doesn't have verbal content um that musician is exploring rhythm tones sounds composition um feelings emotions what have you it can really be about anything but it yeah. doesn't explicitly have verbal content and lyrics whereas um and that would relate to uh paintings that deal with exploring color and form some of the words are even the same between music and um a painting uh like tone composition things rhythm visual rhythm you can have that uh and so a painting that has verbal content like a landscape or a painting of someone painting of burt reynolds a painting of george soroy um that you could relate to music that has very explicitly stated verbal content so if you think of a song that has lyrics what would be a song that has lyrics that comes to mind to you um that well, everyone would know um i would throw out uh coldplay's viva la vida oh okay i'm not super familiar with that the, the um, one uh, i used to rule the world oh okay yeah. so when you hear that you know what the song is about it's explicitly stated in the lyrics um and that would relate more to a painting that has uh verbally identifiable content so i think that's a way to help, you know, most people when they hear classical music or jazz or instrumental music, they don't say, I don't get it. What does it mean? Right. We're, we're more used to hearing um, instrumental music, but um, paintings are really similar in a lot of ways. So, yeah. um, you know, this, this kind of non-representational exploration of color and form, invented form. I work in a really uh, intuitive way. I start out with drawing in my sketchbook um drawing and drawing and drawing until my sketches feel right and then i do a lot of color studies i paint um 
typically start painting uh, thinking about what kind of ground or background I want to paint. So it might be a gradient that goes from magenta to green or maybe yellow to gray. Um, and then I get really inspired by the color that I see um, and start drawing in response to that. Um, and I make very refined, careful uh, studies and drawings. Um, and keep refining and refining and then um, end up uh, uh, creating a painting that relates to those studies. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not someone who just goes in and like slapdash, gestural um, kind yeah. of explosion on the canvas. Um, I absolutely do like the process of sketching and, and planning and creating studies. Um, it's just the way I, I like to work right now. So I'm open to other kinds of working. My undergraduate degree was in illustration and I love figure drawing. Mm -hmm. um, we actually in undergrad had this rigorous anatomical study, <coughs> excuse me, rigorous anatomical drawing where we went to the cadaver lab at MCV and oh, the wow. medical students were showing us how ligaments work. We were studying the skeleton, the organs, everything. Um, so oh. I have to admit some students were quite squeamish when they saw that. But um, once you have that kind of rigorous training in anatomy, um, your figure drawings, your figures, you know what's happening under people's skin. Um, so right. your drawing doesn't just look like a, a sack of flesh. It looks like um, a, a living being that has muscles and tension to how the limbs move and, and um, organs that are making things happen inside. Um, so I'm really open to getting back to figuration, getting back to verbal or literal content. Um, something last uh, spring, I mean, last fall that I got into for fun was Inktober, which is mm -hmm. sort of like the NaNoWriMo for writers in oh, a way. Yeah. yeah, Inktober, it's just you do an ink drawing, post it online every day in the month of October. That's and I awesome. just did it for fun. I just did it for fun yeah. because I love drawing, but I got into doing really intuitive, ink drawings in my sketchbook sometimes I would only have 10 minutes to do it mm -hmm. um, but I, I really fell in love with drawing all over again and so um, you know I've spent this decade doing non-representational work that's a serious exploration of color and form mm -hmm. and I'm feeling like that might be the first phase of my artistic development but I'm ha have a feeling that you know there are going to be some big changes soon uh, hopefully. So I'm open to experimenting a lot. Um, but I do think it's been valuable to have this serious exploration of color and form for a decade. I think that's a great thing to have done, to really have taken it very seriously for 10 years of painting and showing. Um, so I wouldn't say I have a style at this point, uh, because I'm concerned with making work that is stylistically timeless. Yeah. So I think a lot of times you'll see when you look at art through history, you'll see art that immediately looks like the trends of the era in which it was made or looks dated. So you can see something and say, oh, that looks so Rococo because of all the swirling decorative flourishes, flourishes and the way everyone's dressed in the painting. Um, so that's something I think about a lot. Like, how do you make a painting that is stylistically timeless? Um, and I read, I read that the great logo designer Paul Rand was mm -hmm. thinking about that. Um, so the idea that if you want a logo that you design to be functional over a long period of time, 
Um, he felt that a trademark should be reduced to elementary shapes that are universal, um, visually unique, but also stylistically timeless. So this mm -hmm. idea that elemental forms, so basic shapes, um, universal forms, uh, can help render work stylistically timeless that he thought about that. That's something I think about too. Um, for example, the Art Nouveau era, um, mm -hmm. for those of you who study art history and love artwork, um, Alphonse Mucha would be a great example of an Art Nouveau artist. What was really typical of that era, which was roughly um, 1890 to 1910, so sort of like 20 years around the turn of the century, um, the, one of the main stylistic elements of the Art Nouveau era was this curvilinear line that was applied to everything. So you see a lot of curvilinear, swirling, swooping Art Nouveau hair or mm -hmm. floral vines or that kind of thing. Um, but this organic curvilinear line that sort of flows all over a composition that, that identifies most work as being from the Art Nouveau era or nowadays sort of mimicking that look, that stylistic sensibility. Um, so one, one thing, if you look at logos that were designed in that era, once you're keen to the stylistic, main visual identifying characteristic that's stylistic for the Art Nouveau era, if you look at the GE logo or the Coca-Cola yeah. logo, those mm. were both designed in the Art Nouveau era. So they have that curvilinear line to them. And immediately they look like, hey, they're from the Art Nouveau era. So Coca-Cola's um, swirling logo, it screams Art Nouveau. Um, so that is something to think about for visual artists like how you know how can you make your work not look too too dated how can it not seem stuck in your era it's kind of hard to say um might be impossible to do but it's something i contemplate so what that's, about with writing i'm sure that's something with writing too that you have oh to do man, like i mean yeah. that's, it's something that uh yeah um wow you know i mean just just thinking of like the coca-cola logo and the ge logo it's like wow you're right they they really are like from the same era. They were definitely kind of almost like fishing from the same pond in, in a sense, because they really are so similar. And it's one of those things you don't really think about until you look at them together and just, you know, kind of like hold up a Coke can right next to your microwave and just like, wow. you know. And with, with writing too, it's like, um, you know, I think writing got to be pretty wordy. When I think about like Charles Dickens or Harriet oh, yeah. Beecher Stowe, uh, some mm -hmm. of those writers were being paid by the paid by the word um, yeah. Oh, yeah and so it was getting really wordy and then i mean and and i'm no literary historian but then writers came along like ernest Hemingway, and they really sort of pared down the work and became a lot more spartan uh which is, which is something i'm trying to like get into you know like because i've realized that you know like um you know with the with the books that i've written so far it seemed like almost like each one was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I don't want to do that, you know, because I don't want to overwhelm my reader with what, with what it is. I think that Excelsior was a perfectly good length, just, at, just about, I think it came out to like just over 75,000 words, but the, wow. next, but the, but the next one ever upward was about almost 110,000 words. Whoa. Yeah. And the finished version of From Parts Unknown, when you take all five parts and put them together, came out to over 165,000 words. Whoa. And yeah, and the big reason why I did that, why I broke it up into five parts was because I didn't want to overwhelm the reader. Because yeah. I'd gotten to, I'd 
because it started out as a 232-page book that I self-published through iUniverse in 2002, way back during the time before self-publishing really became a thing. Well, I, want, I know. I want to ask you about that, why you made the decision yeah. to do that. Um, it was it was pure necessity, really, because I had um, I wanted to get this story out, and originally mm -hmm. it was a video game proposal, and then it was um, then then I was just like, well, let's see how it is as a treatment for a script. So I wrote that. Mm -hmm. Let's see how it is as a script, and I wrote ten drafts of that over the next couple of years, just to just to get this story out there. I just really mm -hmm. you know believed in the story. I really wanted to get it out there. And when nothing was happening with the script, it actually got an accolade from the um, uh, New York International Independent Film and Video Festival, which is a smaller festival that's based out of, um, that's set, that set up shop at that time in Madison Square Garden. And I was working at Two Penn Plaza. So it was basically just like bring my stuff over to work and then just bring it down downstairs to the garden and set up shop once, uh, once my day at work was done. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, basically like all, I, you know, like it wound up, um, it didn't get like a big award, but they created a category just to give me a certificate saying, calling it the best futuristic drama of the, of, of the festival. And pretty much like, it's, it's not like that, you know, it was beating down the door for that. It was kind of like the only futuristic drama out of that, out of that batch because everyone else had like all these indie scripts that were, mm -hmm. that were trying to sell. And here I am with this, you know, this um, futuristic, um, act, you know, like uh, action flick that um, that's across <laughs> that's across between um, uh, Rollerball Network, The Manchurian Candidate, and Noel's Bard. So it was just like, whoa! It had do you its think, I I keep thinking, like, do you think it will be at some point adapted to film or TV? I would love. I actually Netflix. Think, I think it would do really well as a miniseries on the WWE Network. I think. Okay. That, uh, I I. You know, like this is this is my plea to Vince um, to, <laughs> you know, get, give it a look because um, because wrestling itself is treated with utmost respect. And the you know, like um, there were you know elements that were definitely inspired by uh, WWE from the 1990s. And, um, you know, that that was it was it was definitely its own its own little monster. And. I would love to see it as a five-part miniseries, just to you know see if it'll if it would spark some interest in the book. You know. Oh yeah, uh, I would love to see that. Um, did you ever watch Monday Night Raw? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I was, yeah. I've been a watcher for that for years. Um, I okay, mean, I, I used to too because yeah. I um when I was at VCU, I had three roommates and three of us were art majors, but then we had one PE major and oh, nice. um yeah but he watched monday night raw every monday in the shared living space and so um just just because it was on every monday um normally around the time the rest of us would be eating dinner and and in the yep. room um we all started watching it it was really that was definitely the time to watch it too because that's you know like late 90s that's when it was the stone cold steve austin yep that was that was mm -hmm. the rise of austin that was um, that was basically like this wonderful <laughs> era, you know, like the Monday Night War wow. is just a fantastic era in, in, in <laughs> sports entertainment history. Like that's something that, you know, like that I've, you know, I, that was when I was, you know, like the biggest, biggest watcher then as well and continued to watch it for, you know, quite a few years after that. It's only like in recent years that I kind of, that kind of fell off. And, but at the same time, I still keep an ear out for what's going on and, um, definitely, you know, I got, it's been a couple of years since I've watched a WrestleMania live, but you know, it's something I always keep, you know, like to, um, like to watch out for and keep myself, 
familiar with. Um, but um, I do too. And I think that's a point I love that you're making. I think if you're a creative person, I think it's really important to be open to all aspects of culture. Yeah. Um, when something's wildly popular, like wrestling or, or the Twilight books or mm -hmm. um, anything, I like to just see what it's about and, and yeah. try and think about what it what is it about this that strikes a nerve with with so many people um on the same token i'm i love to be aware of esoteric obscure avant-garde things that aren't aren't necessarily popular in any sense so i, I just think um just staying open to everything i think is um something i try to do i hope to do yeah yeah, and and that's and that's fantastic. That's something that that you know that um, that every artist, whatever their field, should be doing. They you know like it's not like it's not so much of like, you know, follow what trends are out there. You know, like you don't want to do that. You don't want to just be a follower. At the same time, yeah. you want to just keep an ear out for what it is that's making people, you know, respond to things. And if you can somehow make that work in your own field without compromising your own integrity and trying to feel like a sellout, then, yeah. you know, then by all means go for it. You know, um, it was, uh, it was actually like, uh, just kind of getting back to what you were talking about with, um, uh, with Hemingway and, um, and all, all these, all these great smaller books that are out there, um, that really kind of, that really started a whole new trend, you know, like on their own. Um, that's something that I've really, I really want to be cognizant of for the next series that I start up after I finish the Excelsior one, because that one I want to, um, I already know that, you know, like I want this one to be a continuing series, not just a trilogy, but, you know, like, you know, several books in this one um, with no, like, I know how it's going to end, but I don't want to get to that end right away. There's a whole lot of other stories that I have in mind. <laughs> within that universe, but I want each one to be like about maybe 50 to 60,000 words. And that's okay. It. And I feel like that will be a perfectly good uh, setup. So that way people can kind of binge read a little bit. Do you, have you ever thought about like jumping into different genres? Because that's something I was just talking about. Like I've spent about a decade working on this exploration of form and color that's been inspired by things like ideas coming from the Bauhaus or suprematism or emblematic surrealism or graphic design or American quilts, all kinds of things feeding this exploration that I've had for 10 years. But um, I really am contemplating exploring different directions at this point. Um, do you ever think about shifting genres, like just like writing a, a romance or Christian erotica or something like that? <laughs> just graphic jumping into novel, a different really graphic novel, whatever, you know, just Basically an example. Just like they shut the door and then the next chapter starts up. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it, um, I, I've given it some thought. I've given it some yeah. thought, mainly, uh, you know, in terms of say like screenwriting. I feel mm -hmm. like if I was going to tackle another genre, it would have to be like in screenplay form. I feel like I would be able to do the most, get the most out of it by, do, by doing that. Now, I think you and I have something in common. You told me you're thinking about a children's book. And I also, um, that's oh, yeah. something that I'm, I actually completed a children's book that I wrote and illustrated. And it was inspired by um, 
the artist Paul Clay, and I got a literary agent for it, um, and that's where I am right now. So I need exactly. to get on the phone and see what's happening with that. Um, you know, see see where it goes. But then um, this spring, I'm really seriously working with a deadline that I have to set for myself, like you're setting your deadline um, oh, to yeah. do another children's book. So um, I have the idea; it's top secret right now. But I'll be mm -hmm. writing and illustrating it, a picture book. So nice. that's like the picture books are shorter than ever. Their, their word count, it's like 800 words mm -hmm. yeah. is preferred. And so they, that's, it, it sounds, oh, that's short and quick, but it's actually for me as a writer, I think um, it's harder to write something good that's super short in a I way. Know, I know the feeling and, and yeah. that's, that's, what, that's what I'm facing with this other series. And that's what I'm facing with the, with the kids book. I don't want to go into detail regarding the kids book because that's, I'm, I'm keeping that one kind of under wraps, you know, just kind of keeping that one between myself and my wife and my agents. Okay. And so with but, that, you can't even give us a hint, like it's young adult, middle reader, oh, it's, picture it's book. Children. It's a children's book. You know, For, it, like it, a it, picture book? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, oh, so that's like, we have this in common where it's how exciting uh, yeah. picture books for kids. And they're, we're also leading this top secret life, <laughs> the top secret life of children's books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but no, fun, that's but, one thing yeah. you, I, you can't really release everything right away. Um, no, no. And put it all out there. Uh, you sort of have to have to keep it a little secret until you're ready to go. But mm -hmm. that's exciting. Hey, if we yeah. if we should have a book signing together event. <laughs> I would love it. When they I come would, out, that would be it. fun. Any reason, <laughs> any excuse to get to get the two of us in the same room again. Uh, yeah, like are I you said, going to illustrate it yourself? No, no, no. Why um, not? My, because my skills <laughs> are near, you know, the first of all, like I mean, I've seen your work. It's it's phenomenal. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the kind of work that, you know, you know the kind of sketches that I can do, it's barely, it's just good enough for say like you know, a piece of steno note, you know like note, uh, notebook paper. That's pretty much where my my skills begin and end. Um, well, it's a practice like anything. So I think oh yeah. you know I'm I have no doubt if you really got into attending figure drawing classes and drawing a lot, I have no doubt that you would excel at it. Oh, so. it would be it would be interesting. I've never really you know haven't really considered it. Lately. It takes a lot of patience, I think, just to, uh, everything, would you say, do you feel like things are pretty fast and impatient and sort of this soundbite culture in a way lately? I know I am. Uh, I feel like I it has been sort of that way, but I think like to slow down and really carefully do a slow drawing or take a long time to do a painting, um, I appreciate that. I appreciate that uh, sense of patience and slowness to it. I've, I've noticed that's, I've definitely noticed that sort of mentality is coming back because yeah. you know, like we, I feel like we kind of hit the wall when it came to well, the ceiling when it came to digital stuff. It's just like, you mm -hmm. really can't go any further than something that doesn't exist, that's in a cloud, that's not <laughs> um, You know, like, but um, one, of the, uh, one of the things that's going on right now that I've, not that I've taken notice of is that uh, one thing that's selling a lot these days is uh, USB turntables. So it's oh. like, actually, yeah, it's like, uh, and vinyl, you know, like vinyl yeah. made a comeback. Analog. And, uh, yeah. And yeah, people just kind of realize it's like, hey, wait a second, you know, like maybe, maybe let's let's give this a try. You know, let's 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 uh, you know, blow the dust off of this field, this medium, and see what happens. Like, I wouldn't be shocked if a track, you know, like finds its way back in some way. So, <laughs> you know, granted, you know, it's one of those things where it's just like, um, um, 
uh, just like the line in Armageddon. Max wants you to bring back eight track tapes. I don't, I don't know how that's going to happen. So, um, so when, you know, like with all of that, with that, uh, that's that sort of with your, um, with your means of like, you know, trying all these different styles, all these different techniques and everything. Um, has there been a particular one that really kind of stood out for you? Is this like almost, I don't want to say like you've conquered it, but at least like it's something that you feel like the most comfortable working in. A, a certain technique or style? Yeah. Um, really what I've been exploring for the past decade, um, this uh, uh, commitment to exploring color and form. Um, I use a lot of geometric form in my paintings. Um, uh, color is huge thing I pay a lot of attention to. So I think about the idea that chromatic energy is persistent. So this idea of persistent color, um, you know, if something's a bright color, unless it fades out, that color is going to be a continuous chromatic energy. Um, so yeah, I've I lately have been drawing forms on a canvas in a very frontal ma manner, non-overlapping, and I've been letting uh, the color and value, so light to dark, um, the chromatic energy um, create space. So I'm urging color and value toward this perception of the painting having more spatial information mm -hmm. than is really present, but then letting the, the shapes be very flat and on the surface and non-overlapping, inherently frontal. So you have this duality in the painting of flatness. A lot of times the forms acknowledge the edge of the canvas. Um, but then you have a feeling of space. And I love that feeling of space being created only by color and value, like light, light to dark value, um, because that's really imagination. It's like something that's very, very flat, but suddenly your brain is perceiving this fate, this space, imagined space. Mm. Um, to me, that's just magical. It's like an ode to imagination, really just something that isn't really there, but it is really there too yeah. at the same time. So I love that. Um, did I answer your question? I don't know I if I really answered no, your I, question exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think you did. And that's, that's just a, it's, it's a great, that's a, just a great way to, to really kind of, you know, bring that, bring that home, you know, like just that sort of, you know, feeling of just like letting yourself, letting, letting your, letting your imagination really flow. Um, and that's a great, you know, representation of that. You know, like when you see that sort of work that you've done, you know, like on the, on the canvas or on the screen or, or whatever. It's just, uh, it's really, it's really awesome, you know, to, to see <laughs> and, that. And I love talking, you know, talking about painting something super visual on a podcast. Um, I just love to imagine what people are thinking about um, as we talk about paintings. Well, the great, um, the great thing is like with a podcast, we can tell them exactly where they can find your work so they can see it for themselves. Oh, good, so good, good. But they're better in real life. I have to say digitally, it's great to see a reproduction, but I love it when someone can see them in real life because that, again, that analog presence of a painting where you can actually see the texture and the brush strokes, all of that, um, which is, I hope everyone who listens to the podcast is just going to run to a museum or a gallery in the next 10 minutes. Just run, run, yeah. go see some work in person. Um, living with original art is also a wonderful thing. Uh, there's nothing like it to have have an original painting um 
in your home. So I always encourage yeah. people to support living artists. Right. <laughs> support yeah. us while we're alive. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. With, yeah. With, so, so with that in mind, you were saying before, you know, just to, you know, get out there and see a gallery and everything. When I was reading your bio, I read two words that just completely blew my mind, Lincoln Center, because that's where I graduated from college. That's where oh, we wow. had graduation. Uh, and so just being there and, you know, like, and having experienced Lincoln Center and its majesty, because it really is a really majestic area right in, <laughs> right at this little spot, like right in New York City, you can just see like, I mean, just just dripping with culture, you know. Just yeah, it's like this cultural that. magnet yeah, energy yeah. being exuded. Yeah. Right. You know, like, and, and having seen like two operas, you know, like at over there, you know, like going. Oh, to, what did you see? I saw. Um, I I took this wonderful class called Exploring the Performing Arts when I was uh, both a sophomore and a senior in college. They let me take it twice, and okay. the f first time that I took it, um, and I and I love sharing the story. First time that I took it, it was the second semester of my sophomore year. So this is going from February to um, May of 1996. And the first show on our schedule to see was this show that seemed to be gaining some traction down at the New York Theater Workshop. It was getting some buzz because Ooh. the creator had just died a couple of weeks ago. Oh, no. And it was Jonathan Larson. I, oh. The show was Rent. Wow. And so, yeah. So I can always say I saw Rent before. It was cool. <laughs> because, because I got to see it uh, during the previews at the New York Theater Workshop, sitting in the mm. second row, watching this amazing show just unfold in front of me. Wow, wow. And, and, it, and I was taking it for class. Like it was, wow. yeah, like it, it was an amazing feeling. And um, they made sure to add an opera to that. So we saw uh, Romeo and Juliet at the okay. Metropolitan Opera House. And, um, and then the set, and then the second time I took it my senior year, we went to the New York city opera house, which is obviously not as majestic as the Met, but it's still, you know, very nice. And they have, instead of, um, instead of having the lyrics right in front of you, like, right, you know, like on the, uh, seat that's right, you know, that's right in front of you on this little led screen, what the New York city opera house has is the lyrics on a screen right above the stage. And so that's how I got to see Macbeth. Oh, wow. Um, Ver Verity's Macbeth. So, okay. yeah. And just seeing, you know, like, um, and I still remember uh, hearing the, the finale, Vittorio, that just had me just like, I need to own this. You know, like, I mean, the rest of it I was really taken by, but man, Vittorio just absolutely blew me away. Well, um, but, uh, you know, but yeah, so. <laughs> One time I saw an opera um, of Lost Highway, the David Lynch film. Um, oh, cool they made an opera out of it. So my cousin and I went to see it. It was, it was amazing. Um, I, I'm envisioning an opera version of Excelsior Journey uh, right now. That, was, that would that be would nice. Be amazing. We'll, we'll, um, we'll start with the film first and then we'll work our way up, you know, to, to becoming that sort of cultural touchstone. That would be. Yeah, but I, I do think it's so important for creative people to have a lot of great input. So going to operas, right. reading a lot of books, going to mm -hmm. galleries and shows, um, really yeah. anything that you can take in, um, even if it's Monday Night Raw. So yeah. hey, just Monday take Night it, Raw taking it in. Yeah. Lot, so, yeah. so emphasizing that. Um, well, Lincoln Center, uh, 
let me tell you about that. Um, I've volunteered yes. as an artist for the Sing for Hope, New York City Sing for Hope public pianos program. Mm -hmm. And so I came up with an idea for a piano. It needed to be family friendly. It was going to be a piano that was placed in outdoors in Manhattan. Oh, wow. um, and so I designed a piano that I named Octavia Upright and um, basically flat geometric forms and bright colors, but I let the piano keys be the teeth on a mouth, and then I painted eyes and a nose. So it really was this friendly, um, playful piano that kids could enjoy. Um, sort of like something you might see on Pee Wee Herman, something like oh, nice. that, Pee Wee's yeah. Playhouse. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was placed outdoors in Manhattan in Hudson River Park in Chelsea, uh, wow. for two weeks, which was great fun. And so I actually uh, got musician friends to come and play in public. One night, um, a musician friend named William Wade, who was this brilliant pianist, came and he brought some of his Broadway singer friends. They were all singing in the park uh, as the sun set. It was just magical. And then um, at the end of all of that, all of the pianos were brought to Josie Robertson Plaza at Lincoln Center. So it was, you can imagine it, it was 88 pianos out in the plaza at Lincoln Center and oh, wow. 88 pianists um, came and played them all at once. It was truly one of those moments in life where you're like, I can't believe this, this is so magical. Oh. Um, so that I feel really fortunate to have had that opportunity to do that. Um, with showing, I'm pretty relentless and just uh, submitting my work, submitting my work to juried shows. And in the past decade, I've been lucky to have had five solo shows of new work, plus been in 70 group shows, uh, most of them juried or curated. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been working hard, but you know, those numbers really also reflect getting regularly getting plenty of rejection. So it's like for every 100 or 10,000 things that work works out, um, yeah. you know, I mean, for every one thing that works out, I'll have 100 rejections, for example. So it's just plugging away, keeping at it, um, yeah. persisting. Which um, is what, you know, which is what so many, you know, so many people need to remember to do mm -hmm. um, with their, with their own art. You know, like it's, mm -hmm. uh, there's, because there's uh, there's the other side of me, which is also voice acting, and right. um, with that, you know, there are these you know pay to play websites like Voices.com or one two uh, Voice one two three dot com, mm -hmm. and basically like you know you pay you pay a monthly fee in order to get access to all these different things that all these different people that are asking for auditions for all these smaller projects mm -hmm. and you gotta you have to you have to keep plugging away because you're likely going to get like about 30 or so like rejections mm -hmm. before you get one before you before you get one job and because and that's you know that's simply because as soon as that thing goes out then you got hundreds of other people that are watching the screen just as much as you are getting their audition recorded sampled and sent out you know like right away you know, so that way they'll have it within, I don't know, five, 10 minutes. And then that person has to go through it all and decide which one is going to be their, their big hit, you know, like, and they're not going to get to them all, you know. George, all the can you do, I'm dying to hear your craziest voice. Can you do like fake accents? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have to hear it. 
Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> uh, apparently you are. Yeah. Uh, I want to hear, I want to hear your funniest voice or wildest voiceover voice. Oh man. Um, <laughs> well, I really just, um, there's, you know, so many different, uh, different ways that I, that I've been going about, you know, like kind of honing my style. And that's another reason why I want to redo, um, redo Excelsior because I felt like I had kind of like gone a little, I just it hadn't quite gotten the hang of what um, of what I really wanted to do um, when it when it came to voiceover. So, mm -hmm. um, but at the same, you know, like um, you know, like at uh, this at the same time, you know, like I would um, uh, w one of the things that I got to do for Clayton Studios when I recorded my demo there because I took that's where I took my voice lessons. Um, they were asking for you know different. Um, you know, different pres you know, presidential, you know, hopeful types of voices and everything. And, and the one, the one that I was able to really come up with was Bernie Sanders. You know, that, was, <laughs> that was the one that I was able to really kind of, you know, kind of hold on to. But the, the impression that I always, um, that I really hold on to and just say like, yes, I, I will take pride in the fact that I can do a damn good William Hickey. Um, <laughs> that's um, who was Uncle Lewis. Uh, from Christmas Vacation, oh, so, you know the older one. You know, just um, you know the the um, the one with the, the one, toupee. Yeah, the one who told Bethany. Toupee is on fire. Exactly, the one who okay. told Beth, the one who told Bethany, you couldn't hear a dump truck driving through a nitroglycerin plant. <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it. That's yeah, him. <laughs> that's that's some that's something that I'll I'll hold on to. You know, like you better um, check to make sure your hair isn't on fire. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, that, that's great. I need to yeah. hear more of those. Um, I got. I have the demos, both of them on uh, he's got it com. So. Well, no, I, like we're talking about some great performances we've seen, and I I want to tell you about one that I saw. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to hear like what really sticks with you. Mm -hmm. Um, in when we were in high school, yeah, I had an opportunity to attend the governor's school program for the arts in the summer it was like a month-long program where you stayed at the university of richmond and were just immersed in the arts i was immersed oh, wow. in the visual arts program um but we also would go sort of like summer camp for art nerds basically nice. um so but we um got to go to a lot of performances and the one that really just stuck with me um and this would be gosh 1994 i think um we went to Belle Isle, which is an island on the James River in Richmond, mm -hmm. Virginia. I know you know yeah. Belle Isle, oh, um, yeah, but, yeah. Whoever, but it's this island in the middle of the river, and you walk over a pedestrian bridge, and it was summer. I think it was August. So August in Richmond, it's a southern city. You can imagine um, the trees were dark green. Um, and by the way, in, in the summer down south, a lot of times you get a, a thunderstorm in the late afternoons and evenings, um, sometimes every day in the summer. So um, Belle Isle has this big white tent as the stage. And people bring chairs or blankets to sit on. And we were there. Um, and the performer was Dave Brubeck and his band. Oh, wow. 
and and Dave Brubeck, um, jazz master, piano yep. great. He was wearing a white tuxedo, and oh, all the guys in his band had on white tuxedos. And he had this, um, he had a big white grand piano that he was playing, and um, you could, the tent is this big white tent. So you can imagine this scene. This it was kind of getting to be evening. The sky was pink. The trees were dark green. Belle Isle is near a train track too, I should add. And um, they were playing, you know, a lot of their jazz favorites, just playing along, take five, things like that. Mm -hmm. But then suddenly, suddenly a train goes by and these jazz masters start <laughs> playing to the sound of the train. Oh, that's cool. And it just blew my mind. But then we start to get thunder and lightning too it wasn't raining yet yeah. and these guys they just start reacting to the thunder you know you hear thunder and they play along to that lightning flashes and they like make sounds that go with that and i really felt like i'm never gonna see artwork this amazing again yeah. this in the moment you know these uh musicians who are truly masters of their craft um, they've been playing for decades and decades and are just so natural and intuitive and so in the moment, um, just reacting to the world, that that being present, being in the present moment, um, just mind-blowing. So that's yeah. a performance I would say sticks with me um, in a big way. A friend of mine was talking about how a lot of times people spend time ruminating about the past or anticipating the future. So we have all this ruminating and all this worrying, but sometimes the best place to be is just in the moment, just in the yeah. present moment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And That's I think that happens so cool. when you're in a painting or when you're in the story you're writing, you're right there in that moment in the yeah. work. Yeah, yeah, really. Because you have to just, you have to come up with, whatever is you know like you may have like a, a completed picture in mind you may have um a great you know the perfect ending for your book you know like in mind mm -hmm. but you have to get there first you have because you're going to find out that that journey is going to have a lot more twists and turns than you originally thought and yeah um i always say that uh, I've, I've said this in uh, different um speaking engagements that i've done um, cause people always, you know, people ask, you know, like what, um, what changed from the original ideas that you had, uh, with your writing. And I always go back to one specific scene because I always pictured from high school on when I was, you know, first come up with the character Excelsior, I always pictured this grandiose moment where he finally gets his armor and he, and he's slowly putting it on. And it's almost like the, um, it's actually kind of inspired by the um, by the shots in heavy metal when Tarna is putting on her out her uniform and getting ready for getting ready for battle right at the during the whole last segment there. Um, all these you know this these you know sweeping shots and everything and you know even almost like the Jerry Goldsmith score from Star Trek the Motion Picture just you know very you know ve you know very um, very much like a, a huge moment to really kind of drink in and in the finished book that moment is matthew in a bathroom putting on the armor with this fuzzy toilet seat cover you know like on there and it's just like it's so it's so you know like not even like i don't even want to call it basic it's just so like eh. but you know like the what that that was a reason why i did it 
you know, because I yeah. didn't want it to be like this big grandiose moment. It just Melodramatic it and grandiose. It, 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 it yeah. fit perfectly to have it happen in this bathroom with, you know, that fuzzy toilet seat cover and, you know, like just putting so it on. so personal and, and yeah. 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 And having that moment where he like looks at himself in the mirror with the helmet on and he says, I am Excelsior and then takes the helmet off and just says, I am Excelsior. <laughs> it's so poignant, George. Yeah. yeah. It's really poignant. Yeah. Um, but uh, speaking of speaking of amazing moments, for me, it was just like it, in 2006, Cheryl and I got to take another trip over to Lincoln Center. And that was because there was a concert that John Williams was conducting. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And it was his, it was a combination of his music and the music in act one, the music of Bernard Herrmann. Mm-hmm. And so the whole segment with, uh, w- uh, for Bernard Herrmann was hosted by Martin Scorsese. So wow. he's coming out and he's telling stories about all these different moments in Bernard Herrmann's history. And then getting to the last part where he was talking about working with him on Taxi Driver. Wow. And, and how Bernard Herrmann get, had these three notes right at the very end when Travis is looking at himself in the, in the rearview mirror uh, before he goes off off on a shift and um those three notes didn't sound right to martin and so he brought it up to bernard and bernard simply said right before he left at the end of the day he said play it backwards and <laughs> and then he went home and died and was, yeah yeah so you have to you, you have to do what he says right then. you know there you, you know you're not gonna just you know say like well he's not here for it you know um but he he did it he played it backwards and for him that moment worked and so and then the second half of the concert was um was hosted by steven spielberg wow yeah it was an amazing moment oh i love steven spielberg yeah and so the first part of that of uh that act um after the intro because he introed it with the opening from jaws which was amazing (laughs) Uh, but then he um but then he did a suite from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And right at the end of that, I realized I was getting choked up. And I also knew that he was going to do E.T. later on. But I was just oh. like, okay, if I'm getting choked up at Close Encounters, I'm going to be a mess when he gets there. <laughs> and sure enough, not only, did, not, only did he do, not only did he do E.T., but he had a screen going on playing out the final 15 minutes of et oh wow with the orchestra you know conducting you know with the orchestra performing the score with john williams conducting with steven spielberg introducing it and so right at the right when it shows the spaceship landing and he's got to say you know and everyone's saying goodbye to him i am a mess I am an absolute bawling. You probably weren't the yeah. only one, though. I wasn't, because you can hear a chorus of people going, <laughs> once it was all finished. <laughs> so you want to talk about, you know, like mind, you know, like mind-blowing concerts and what great art can do. Like, that is right oh, there. Yeah. When you were talking about how music can do all these different things, like when it's an instrumental piece of, like, classical music or whatever, when... Williams was doing ET. Normally, he has the uh, a projector on to um, to sh- kind of show what's you know what's going on, so that way he can kind of keep pace with uh, with the scene with the music. But yeah. for ET, they had him. He had them turn off the projector, and he just did it. 
and Spielberg actually went back and re-edited that, that finale to go coincide with Williams's music instead of the other way around. And okay. so, so it wound up being no coincidence that that was when, that was what got uh, uh, Williams his fourth Oscar. So, oh. yeah. So it was, that's one of those things where just like, where the art itself can inspire others to do other things. And so like, that's, so hearing what you did like over at Lincoln Center, like that's, that's so amazing. The fact that you were able to share that area, you know, with those, with those kinds of legends. You know, it's oh, I know. That just the, the energy yeah. there. Yeah, it's just, um, it just was um, really a real thrill to be yeah. able to do that. Um, and I made so many nice friends. The, the pianists who came to play, um, the other piano artists, um, just was a joy to participate in that. Um, I think collaborative projects are a great thing for artists and writers to get into because sometimes just working alone in the studio or at your desk can be too isolating. So I yeah. love collaboration. Um, I've had a chance to collaborate um, a number of times, um, collaborate actually on the work itself. So I got to do a collaborative artist book project with artists in Copenhagen, Mexico City, Berlin, London, New York, and Rio de Janeiro. Um, uh, it was writing and photography and we were each covering markets around the world. And so I covered the, the Brooklyn flea market, took a lot of photos and wrote about it. Um, but also collaboration, I think with group shows. So recently I just finished, um, and I think I told you how busy it's been just finished having a big group show over at Pratt Institute of paintings with two artists, Robert Costello and Andy Jemison. Mm -hmm. um, we co-curated the show and um, we're just exciting, excited to do it. Um, they're friends of mine, but I also went through graduate school with them. And um, so I've known them about a decade and it just was a joy to do a collaboration on a big group show of paintings. We had more than 30 paintings in the show and um, great Pratt Institute gave us or allowed us use of two large galleries on campus. So that was a thrill too. So I think um, what's nice about writing or doing paintings is that we can do the work on our own. So in other words, yeah. we can we can wake up any day and do work. Nothing can stop yeah. you from writing a few paragraphs in the morning before you go to work or me sketching, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, but then there's so many ways that once it's out there, you can collaborate and connect with people and get into that. So um, just the practice, developing your practice, getting connected to other people, um, I think is a big part of it. You're great about connecting with people, doing things like the podcast, social media, things like that. Oh, thank you. And, and I hope to keep on doing that. So, um, yeah. so with, with that in mind, um, would that be something that you would um, say would be a tip to, to aspiring artists that are trying to kind of like follow in your footsteps? Oh yeah, I think absolutely. Coll consider collaboration. Um, oh, and I love, I love when you ask me about like aspiring artists, young artists, um, mm -hmm. favorite thing, favorite question of the day. Um, yeah. yeah, I think being open-minded, um, collaborating, connecting with people, um, you know, I think there's so much to say to aspiring artists. Um, I think getting a great education is something I advocate. Um, I, I think my education at 
VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University and Pratt Institute, um, that education has been invaluable. Um, but I think in terms of connecting with people, um, it's great to read and study history, including biographies of artists, but I, I also think cultivating positive and encouraging friendships, um, relationships with people who are enthusiastic, that really makes a difference. I think, um, um, you know, it's if you look at history, it's rare to find a history maker who was incredibly cynical and lacking in enthusiasm. enthusiasm. So even if the work is cynical, um, most history makers still have this fundamental enthusiasm about doing their work, sort of excitedly pouring their energy into it. Um, uh, there's a helpful tip from Milton Glaser. I mentioned him earlier um, in that he mentioned that art is work. Another thing I want to mention that he, he said or he wrote, um, and by the way, everyone knows Milton Glaser. He designed the I Love New York uh, t-shirt or design. Um, he's known for designing all kinds of things that you've seen. Um, he wrote an essay called 10 Things I Have Learned. And in that essay, he talks about how some people are toxic and should be avoided. So he really basically says, pay attention to the effect other people have upon yourself or upon you. Um, so it's, I think, important for young people to pay attention to, for example, if a friend is constantly negative, um, constantly putting down your enthusiasms, putting down your dreams, or if you feel drained all the time after you hang around that person, um, it's worth considering if it's like a toxic relationship. On the other hand, it can work the other way. If you always feel energized or motivated or excited um, after being around someone or working with them, um, that's the opposite. It's a, a really positive, encouraging relationship. So yeah, collaboration, connecting with other artists, um, building a support system, that all would be really, really critical for young artists. Um, in addition to, of course, focusing on developing one's work. Um, right. I think developing one's work is really the most important thing. Um, and I think developing one's work rather than fixating on commercialism or selling, um, because a lot of times work that's commercially popular is not what is intellectually groundbreaking or maybe innovative or experimental. And it's so also I think, not timeless. It's not yeah right because yeah, it could just be a trend trends mm -hmm. come and go and you know like if if you're just doing something just because it's good for that particular period of time then it's only going to stay in that particular period of time it's not absolutely yeah. yeah and it could it could convolute a young artist's development if he or she's making work with this real strong concern about commercial success um right you know or worrying about like how many followers on social media you have or how many likes your work receives because I think it's important to keep in mind that a lot of innovators weren't popular <laughs> when they were getting yeah. started or even understood at first so I think being being yourself making work you want to make and believe in um, exploring things you truly want to explore um, I think it's helpful to know that there's not a right or wrong to art. Um, I think that's what makes it wonderful and at the same measure terrifying. The possibilities are endless. Yeah. Um, 
I see like people get into being jealous of friends' successes. I think jealousy is a, not a good way to spend your time and energy. I really think there's room for everyone. I think it's a lot more fun to feel excited and genuinely happy when a fellow artist has success or achieves recognition. Um, you know, and, and really, if you keep working, there will be room for you. So just this yeah. idea that there is room for everyone's work. Um, and then I, I think realizing we don't have unlimited days, you know, I said it earlier, all of our days are numbered. So, um, you know, make work now, do it now. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I also want want to say I think it's important for artists to not limit themselves to one artistic canon. So I keep mentioning, you know, explore, explore input from a lot of sources, um, explore beyond the art history books, um, take it all in, recharge your creative batteries um, with excellent, excellent input. Um, you know, and I think everyone gets down or unmotivated because we're on this path where we're working and working and say you have have three months where you get continuous rejection from everything, you know, like a yep. rejection letter a day. Um, mm -hmm. It's hard not to feel down or unmotivated. Um, so, you know, uh, I think first taking good care of oneself, it helps to acknowledge if you're really exhausted. Sometimes you do need a break or you need to just get more sleep or eat healthier food, drink more water. That kind of just basic taking care of oneself can be pretty yeah. fundamental. Um, and then for young people, knowing, um, and it's, you know, I have to remind myself of this too, knowing that we really have the power within us to direct our emotional response to things um, toward more positive thinking. So, you know, sometimes it can be a choice to really like ruminate in negativity or, or the antithesis is true that uh, being happy can be a choice. So, but all I'm saying all of this, but I think a really critical thing for young people and everyone is to try to maintain a sense of humor, especially about oneself. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's 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 such you know great advice, and it's something that I really hope that all of all of my listeners really kind of take to heart. You know, like when it comes to everything that they're working on. <laughs> Um, now and not take of, oneself too seriously, like yes. avoid conceit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so where can, where can our listeners find you? Um, well, right now I'm sitting at a chair in Brooklyn, but I'm just well, sort of cutting up. No, um, the, on, on Twitter and Instagram, I have two handles. One is at Elizabeth Meggs. That's E-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H-M-E-G-G-S. Also at Meggs Paintings, which is at M-E-G-G-S-P-A-I-N-T-I-N-G-S. Mm -hmm. And then my website is www.elizabethmeggs.com. And that's my name, E-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H-M-E-G-G-S.com. Um, I'm getting ready to revamp my website. Um, as you know, like the web presence is always a thing artists and writers have to think about and redo oh, and yeah. rework. So I'm yep. excited. I'm reworking the website. If they see it now, they'll see... Um, not my latest work, but, you know, if mm -hmm. they come back in a couple of months or a month or so, they'll see brand spanking new stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that sounds fantastic. And all right, folks, I can't, <laughs> I can't stress just how inspired, you know, like I've been just talking with Elizabeth and I really, really hope that all of you are just as much. Um, this has been just a terrific conversation, you know, that I've had 
with an old friend. And I hope that she is now your new friend. Uh, <laughs> I hope so too. And I've had a wonderful time talking to you. Who would have known? You know, we, we were in drama class together with our wonderful teacher, Mr. Dameron, whom we both yep. love and really give a lot of credit to. And who would have thought all these years later that we would be talking about your books, my paintings? It's so exciting. It really yeah. is. It really is an excelsior journey. So right. onward and upward. For all, for all of us, yes. And so, so, yeah. So I, you know, like, I, you know, can't thank you enough for be, for being on the show. I can't thank all of you listeners enough for taking the time to listen uh, to this show, to previous shows, and hopefully to future shows, because we got a whole lot more people that are on this ever-increasing queue of people that want to be a part of this show, want to be a guest on it, want to share their journey with all of you. So I really hope you're all listening. I uh, thank you all for listening to this episode. And for Elizabeth Meggs, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>